this evening about uh, compassion and emptiness. If uh, we have just If we have just a simple uh, sort of working definition of what compassion is, uh, I think we all have a sense of what it is, but um, it might be, we, we could say something like, compassion is the natural, the natural response of the heart um, to suffering when the heart is not preoccupied with self-interest. It's just what naturally flows out of the heart when we're not uh, closed in on ourselves. Or if it's to our own suffering, it's the natural response of the heart when we're not entangled in some kind of negative self-view, negative self-belief. And that natural response of the heart when it comes into contact with the pain of the world, it... Uh, wants to heal it wants to alleviate to soothe to ease that suffering in a way uh, compassion rests on loving kindness this quality of metta that we talk about so that quality of well wishing of wishing for the happiness of all beings of deep friendliness towards all beings when that quality is in the heart and it meets suffering, when that comes into contact with suffering, compassion flows. There's a natural outgrowth of a heart that, that uh, has that friendliness in it. That might be okay, and that, that is okay as a definition. But actually, all, all, all these things that we talk about in the Dharma, they're, they're actually just words. So we use the word compassion, it's a beautiful word. Um, but the words, is, is just a word in the final analysis. Actually, compassion is something that's very rich, has a lot of different aspects to it, has a lot of different dimensions to it. So we use words like compassion or these other Dharma words, and really they're, uh, they're just a label for something that's helpful, that's hopefully helpful to orient the heart in a certain way. If we look a bit more fully at what compassion is, you actually see it's kind of a composite, it's something that's made up of a lot of different things. So if we think, well, what goes into compassion? Um, it includes the quality of empathy, the quality that when we uh, see someone suffering, our heart somehow trembles with that. Somehow we, uh, almost like we take it in through the air. And our heart moves with that suffering. That's what we call empathy, suffering with. The uh, compassion includes empathy, includes this giving. There's a giving aspect of compassion. It includes equanimity, a kind of steadiness in the face of suffering. That has to be uh, something that's an essential aspect of compassion. It can't be blown over by suffering. So 
equanimity is a factor of compassion. Wisdom and understanding. We have to actually understand suffering in order to uh, help alleviate it. Kindness. The quality of acceptance, of listening, of holding. All these are part of compassion. Opening. Joy, too, is a part of compassion. Humor. And with all that, it's also important to realize that compassion is actually not just a feeling. Lovely as that feeling may be when it's there, that we uh, feel with another, we feel with another being, and how beautiful that is. But actually, compassion cannot just be a feeling. It has to be more than that. If we just reflect on times when we've been involved in uh, helping people or doing some kind of service work, or whatever, it's never this, uh, you know, complete, endless, and uninterrupted flow of of lovely feeling. There's going to be times when you're just doing the work because that's what needs to be done. You don't particularly feel anything in the heart. Maybe even irritated at something. But uh, compassion has to be bigger than the feeling. And as human beings, I think we really, we really love and appreciate compassion. We, I think we have a sense, even if it's dim, a dim sense, somewhere deep in our hearts of uh, the possibilities of our heart. And we actually, I think, all yearn for that, for living a life that's um, really touched deeply and often by compassion something very deep in us. We know there's something about that that we hunger for. Some of the reasons that we hunger are because when we're feeling compassionate, there's actually a real connection going on. We're, we're literally feeling with another. And so we feel connected. And human beings like to feel connected. We love to feel connected. We don't like feeling isolated. So that is a, an aspect of compassion, one of the reasons why we love it. And similarly, connected to that, it actually, when compassion is in the heart, it, it actually dissolves the kind of prison of self-interest that is so much uh, a factor in our lives. So much of the time we're, we're uh, enclosed in, in self-interest, in being concerned for ourselves. And when the heart moves out to, to hold, to touch, to support, to heal another, we're actually breaking out of that prison of self-interest, and it's a huge relief. It's a huge relief. Just energetically, actually, the, the factor of uh, the quality of compassion actually feels uh, very lovely. It has uh, a good feeling, a pleasant feeling. It has, uh, there's warmth with it. We like that warmth. And that's, uh, the Buddha says, know, know where to find pleasure and take it there. Just know what's a good kind of pleasure. It has a sweetness to it. And I think that the deeper we, the deeper, the longer we practice, the further we go with all of this, <coughs> One of the things that happens, 
in a very real way is that something changes in the heart and we, we find ourselves uh, making a deeper and deeper commitment to compassion in our lives. That somehow, all, all, of all the things in our lives that might uh, have a stake to, you know, to seem important, more and more it's qualities like compassion that just really rise up to the fore and say, this is really important to me. And that's some, something very strong running out of my heart and in my life. Commitment to compassion, commitment to kindness, these things really come to the fore. And so someone like the Dalai Lama, uh, nowadays he just says, my religion is kindness. It's someone who's devoted his whole life to the spiritual path and actually it's kind of boiled down to that in the end. We might see the, we might feel uh, the, the, the importance of the quality of compassion. <coughs> but perhaps that alone is not enough. For the Buddha, um, asking the right questions in life is something he put great emphasis on, is very important. I'm often struck when I read the, the uh, suttas, the, the, his original discourses. When he's describing his practice before enlightenment, how often it's filled with him asking himself questions. Why does this happen when this happens? How does suffering arise? It's because of this. Why does that happen? And tracing things back, it's this constantly uh, wanting to penetrate, wanting to, the, wanting to ask questions, very deep questions of life, of himself. And similarly, when he was teaching, uh, he would often ask questions of people. And then if they couldn't answer, he would give the answer himself. He's always asking questions. So is that, um, is that spirit of questioning really strong and alive in our hearts? And one of my teachers used to say, our, in a way our life depends on, on what questions we ask. That that, that questioning is, is really, really alive. Um... So in terms of compassion, the questions are, how, what, what helps this quality? What encourages this quality? And what blocks this quality? Those, those are the questions that the Buddha would ask of compassion. Actually, about asking questions, I, uh, I only know two things about um, the writer Gertrude Stein. But one of them was apparently she was, uh, she was on her deathbed in and out of a coma. And, um, and there was a sort of entourage of people around. And uh, one of them, I think her name was Mavis, something or other, and, um, and Gertrude Stein would come in and out of the coma and uh, oftentimes have this sort of sense of a person sort of stepping over into the other side and maybe getting a glimpse of something that you know, normal human beings don't see. And then she would come back and regain consciousness and... Uh, this person maybe has asked Gertrude what's the answer and Gertrude Stein said Mavis what's the question (laughs) (laughs) so it's just sometimes we have a sense that there's that there's something we're asking but we're not actually quite specific quite driving enough in the question so really to be uh, very specific and alive in the question that we have. 
And then there are many techniques that we can, we can uh, you know, use to develop compassion. Uh, in the Theravadan tradition, we use um, you know, the phrases that we repeat. In other traditions, there's the practice of tonglen, of, of giving and receiving compassion. Uh, a person may use uh, an image of a bodhisattva or reflections on a bodhisattva, some being of great compassion, whether it's Avalokiteshvara, the bodhisattva of compassion, whether it's Jesus, it doesn't matter. Some, all these techniques are available, these approaches are available, it doesn't matter. Uh, just actually developing insight tends to lead to compassion if one goes about it a certain way. But it's not just formally asking the question, how can I develop it, what techniques can I use? It's more, how, how really can this quality be a very deep current in my life? How can the quality of compassion be something that's really, really um, a major force in my life? So, again, the Buddha would ask, what is it that nurtures compassion? What is it that allows compassion to grow? So, actually, this is what I'd like to explore tonight a little bit. And one of the sort of most basic and obvious uh, conditions that allows compassion to grow is actually very simple. It's just the willingness, the openness to let ourselves come close to suffering, to let ourselves touch suffering, look at suffering. And this often means starting with our own suffering, just... Uh, do we have that willingness to just open and just be with and be actually intimate with our suffering because it's part of being alive actually that's not that obvious I mean you could uh, say that to a lot of people who, who maybe don't come to places like these and be like what do you want to do that for it's not actually that obvious um, but it's only through coming close and opening that we can actually begin to understand and begin to do something about suffering, which is the movement of compassion. And even if we've been hanging around these kind of places for years, we actually need reminding of that. It's something that <laughs> is very easy to forget. So we, we need to... Um, in a way, just remind ourselves of uh, refine that willingness to to open to our suffering. So there's this willingness to open to touch suffering. It's also just uh, the progress of insight, if we could call it that. Just the more we begin to look into these questions that we've been uh, talking about over the days, the questions of impermanence, questions of uh, suffering itself, questions of how suffering arises, the more insight grows, the more actually uh, compassion grows with it. It's something that should uh, grow naturally out of compassion. The more we uh, open to and have an understanding of, of uh, what I was talking about in the last talk, of this not uh, emptiness of self, Again, if I'm not so enclosed in myself, it has to flow out in compassion. It has to. The borders, the barriers are not so strong, and it has to move that way.
So if we think about developing compassion, it's not just that it develops here on the cushion in the meditation hall. I mean, of course not. Uh, these qualities like compassion, like kindness, like patience, and all that, they develop very much through action as well as through reflection and through meditation. So that means, are we uh, choosing actions in our life? Are we putting ourselves in situations that actually uh, will develop compassion because they are uh, compassionate actions? So if we engage in compassionate actions, it builds compassion as a quality of the heart. It's not just on the cushion. And there, there are countless opportunities, I mean, little ones through the day with the people that we know and we come across with. But also, uh, the, the world is, is full of places to go and, 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 uh, and work and help. And... Um, you know, there's all those cheap airlines now, and uh, <laughs> it's great. You know, it's just unfortunate a lot of them just get used for to go and lie on a beach somewhere. And actually, there's we can actually uh, make choices, in, indulge, engage in actions that really do cultivate our heart. Similarly, uh, there are people in the world who are for different reasons, uh, have very strong compassion in their hearts, very open hearts, very dedicated to the service and the well, the welfare of others. And somehow, I mean, for myself, I found that being around those people has a way of, uh, it kind of rubs off a little bit, just a little bit. And maybe we need to sometimes think about actually seeking these people out and spending some time with them, if we can. Association with the wise, the Buddha, highly recommended. Association with the compassionate. There's actually many factors that feed compassion. One of the less obvious ones is actually happiness. That our, our capacity for compassion, our capacity for care is actually dependent on us uh, having, on us being happy, that we, that, that we have a feeling of enough, that we're not um, feeling deprived in some way. So t- to take care of our happiness is actually building the foundations for our capacity for compassion as well. And I have a very good friend who's... Um, I, she doesn't practice at all, and she's not even interested in that. But uh, she, just naturally, her heart—it seems to me—is is one of the most, I don't know, compassionate and empathic I've, I've ever come across. Uh, yet at the same time, she's also quite prey to uh, attacks of of self-judging thoughts and that kind of uh, lot of negative self-belief, and sometimes for quite prolonged periods of time and. Uh, you can just see her ability and her willingness to to help others is just completely shot by that. So to take care of our happiness is a gift to other people. So we might also ask, what is it that is blocking compassion? What is it that's not helpful? And this is actually... Um, I mean, there are some obvious things. I'd like to look at uh, some of the uh, maybe less obvious 
things that get in the way a little bit. And it's not that any of these are wrong, uh, or that we should judge them if, if these kind of uh, blocks or distortions are happening. It's actually natural. And it's to be expected that if we're endeavoring to cultivate compassion, that we're going to run into qualities of mind and heart that mm, are not quite it. They may be a little bit off. So that's all to be expected in this movement towards greater compassion. The first one is actually fear that we're afraid of, of suffering, which is completely understandable because it's suffering and, and it hurts, especially if it's ours. Uh, when there's pain in the body, when there's pain in the heart, we tend to retract from it. And uh, there's fear going on. That shrinkage of fear blocks, blocks the flow of love, blocks the flow of compassion. But it not only does that, it actually adds to the suffering. That contraction of the heart uh, is another, a whole other level, a whole other layer of suffering. So just, again, not to judge all this, just to see, ah, oh, there's suffering, is there fear in relationship to it? And then maybe we need to work with the fear. When we are confronted with the suffering of others, fear can also be a factor that kind of derails the movement of compassion. Uh, there's a lot of suffering in the world. There's actually probably an unimaginable, un, un, immeasurable amount of suffering in the world. It's just in all its forms and all its degrees, it's actually probably immeasurable. When we come into contact with that suffering, it's, it can be very common and very normal for a sense of this little self how can I do anything? And to actually the little self feels overwhelmed, feels unable to uh, hold it, to encompass it, to embrace it. It's too much for the little sense of self. And there's fear. So again, this, this has everything to do with uh, this emptiness of self that we've been talking a little bit about. Is it really me, the little self, holding the compassion, holding the suffering? In a way, either there's fear or love. Either there's fear or, or there's love. When there's fear, there's that constriction. When there's love, there's the opening. And so, to work with fear uh, is also to work on our love. This aspect of fear, the first uh, way that it might get derailed a little bit. The second one is um, anger. This is quite interesting because in a way it's as if we come into contact with suffering and our, our natural movement of compassion actually gets diverted into anger. We tend to start blaming. It's their fault. They shouldn't have done this. Or it's my fault. I shouldn't be suffering. Blaming or judging or getting a sense of uh, self-righteousness. What's going on there? We're not actually understanding the causes of suffering. So it's it's 
uh, actually it might be a bit of a defense reaction. We're actually taking ourselves away from being in contact with the suffering and getting into anger, which is like one step removed and a bit more defensive. It's a bit easier sometimes to blame, to get into judgment. It might actually be using that in an unconscious way to, to step back from the suffering because it's too much. But it may also be that, and it probably is, that we're not actually understanding the causes of the suffering. What, what's, what's contributed to the suffering? We're not understanding all the different causes, all the dependent arising in the, in, in the Dharma language. How all the factors come together to create the suffering. We just start pointing the fingers, it's their fault or it's my fault. It's not, it's not that simple. I remember uh, the last last uh, two two years. I lived in in Boston in the states, and I'm, I'd moved to a suburb on on the outskirts of Boston. It was quite a well, it was quite just a sort of American dream suburb sort of thing. And I, I rented a small room there, and it was a sort of second and third generation immigrants who who very much. Uh, well, this was my perception at the time. They very much believed in the American dream and having their house that, that was very well guarded and well kept, and uh, if swimming pool, if they could afford it, and uh, um, uh, and then cars. Uh, and it seemed to me that almost everyone had these SUV vehicles, you know, the big um, sports utility vehicles, which at that time. Uh, they were huge, huge gas guz- guzzlers. You know, they used up an enormous amount of uh, petrol, and they also, in America at that time, they, they had no um, what do you call emission uh, control, so they could their exhaust was extremely polluting. And I would walk around my neighborhood and, and feel, you know, a bit <laughs> irate at this and quite judgmental. And then 9-11 happened, you know, September the 11th, and uh, all the SUVs and everything. And I, I, to me, it seemed quite clear that there was a connection between American oil interests and their presence in the Gulf and, and, and you know, the, what happened on, on 9-11. It seemed to me there was a connection. And I asked my teacher about this, and I, f- I felt angry. And uh, she said, oh, give... Give them matter and wish them more SUVs. Wish them more. <laughs> Which uh, I said, right, okay. <laughs> and I dutifully went and tried, and I, I found it very difficult. <laughs> and after a while, I gave up. But what was helpful, actually, was was somehow, it probably wasn't my idea, but um, so- somehow realizing that actually all this was coming out of ignorance. Not, not the, the, the connection wasn't seen between oil consumption, the car you drive, the, the, the world politics, the, all, all that. What it just, it, it wasn't seen. And this ignorance, we could say they're ignorant, but actually, ignorance doesn't belong to anyone. It's just ignorance. I'm ignorant in different ways. They're ignorant in different. Ways. It doesn't matter. It's just ignorance, and it's part of the human condition. It doesn't belong to self. And somehow seeing it in that way helped to actually uh, bring a softening and free some compassion for me. Anyway, I would have had to ask, where where was the compassion? I was getting very self-righteously angry, but where was the compassion? 
So we can use anger, as, as I say, as a way of distorting and diverting the movement of compassion. When it's our own suffering that we're talking about, um, it's not the case that uh, compassion is... It doesn't push away suffering uh, through anger, through aversion. That's not what compassion does. It's more a quality of actually holding the suffering and adding the ingredients, adding the qualities of healing, of understanding with holding and understanding and healing rather than pushing away. So there's fear, there's anger or aversion. There's also a quality of what what we might call pity. Um, Pity is something that, that happens when if it's in relation to another we're not kind of seeing them as equals. We're a little bit oh, you poor, poor little thing suffering there. There's, there's a bit, there's a separation and a distance, and it also can be used as a defence. We don't want to come too close, and so we put, put people in another category or down a bit, and then from up here we pity them. <coughs> pity, and especially if it's self-pity, it's quite, it's quite easy to see. It actually has, has the. Uh, effect of being disempowering. It actually has the effect of being debilitating and disempowering and actually keeping suffering there. In that way it's different from compassion which actually empowers ourselves or empowers another and actually helps to alleviate it. So they're quite different. Compassion actually is not debilitating, it's, it's energizing when, when we move more towards the pure uh, manifestation of compassion. And again, just to reiterate, none of this is wrong if there's pity or anger or, or fear. It's all part of what's, what's normal, what's to be expected. But just to be aware, when am I drifting and, and can, I, can I redress the situation? What's actually common to to all those, uh, to fear, to anger, pity, is actually that there's uh, too much of of a self-view has gotten involved. So, um, if there's pity, we're looking down. If there's anger, we're blaming. Me and them, different. They do that, I don't. They suffer, I I don't. I, I don't have that kind of suffering or self-pity, it's just got completely wrapped up in the whole self-story, in the whole self-view. Fear too, again, the fear of the, the little self being overwhelmed. The self has got too much in the picture, so part of uh, the movement towards greater compassion is actually this understanding, this loosening of the constriction of self and the belief in self. We need to begin to actually, uh, sometimes very deliberately, actually start to to try and and see the commonality that we have, the the common humanity that we have. Suffering is suffering. It doesn't matter who or 
even why actually suffering is suffering whether it's out of ignorance out of greed, out of selfishness out of cruelty suffering is suffering and the delusion that uh, gives rise to it that there's a factor in suffering is, is delusion is delusion There's fear, anger, pity. Uh, the, the last one is grief, this quality of grief, which actually is, in a way, quite tricky too. It's, it's common that we come into contact with suffering. We, we, we do actually open to the suffering, but then we actually find ourselves very tired and very burdened and weighed down by it, and actually feeling quite overwhelmed by it and debilitated. This is extremely common human reaction. Again, compassion in its pure form is something that's actually quite bright. It's quite strong and energized, quite empowering. We'll talk a bit more about this. If we if we think about a couple of aspects of compassion, two of the most central aspects of compassion are the uh, the what I talked about earlier, this quality of empathy. So almost uh, deliberately drinking in someone's pain, feeling our heart trembling with that, feeling our heart moving, resonating with that. This quality of taking in the suffering is actually uh, very central to what compassion is, empathy. But that empathy has to be balanced with another quality. It has to be balanced with this quality of giving. That, that actually there is, as I said, a movement within compassion to want to heal, to want to soothe, to want to ease. It's, it's an energy going out. The quality of empathy, of taking in, of receiving suffering, uh, might have a sweetness to it, a sweetness to the sadness of it. Uh, and it can very well. But actually, if, if things are too much on that side of, of the uh, balance, it will end up being quite tiring and a lot of grief and actually quite difficult to sustain the compassion and not feel overwhelmed. So that empathy has to be balanced with this quality of giving. It has to be balanced by this quality of something coming out of the being that either actively... Uh, physically is, is healing or, or wants to heal or just gives that energy of healing, of easing, of soothing. That quality of giving is actually in itself quite bright, quite enjoyable, quite uh, happiness-inducing. Now, if it was all that, then we're, we'll get a bit out of contact with the suffering and with, of other people. So these two qualities actually need to be need to be balanced. And it's not that we find one still point and stay there for the rest of our lives. It's it's something that moves back and forth. But to be aware of that balance uh, as the heart is uh, wanting to open this way. As compassion deepens uh, in our being, either through formal practice or just uh, through practice in general, can actually talk about, in a way, a third aspect of it, and it can seem 
can seem at first that the self is doing all this. The self is doing this compassion. It's me taking in. It's me giving. It's me doing the holding. But as the compassion deepens, as the sense of that deepens and the heart opens in a way and there's more stillness comes, it's quite common uh, to have the the beginnings of, of a sense of this actually isn't me being compassionate. It's not something the self is doing. It's not me holding it. It's not me holding the suffering. As compassion deepens, it can be that there's a sense of a space opening, as if compassion has a quality of spaciousness to it that can accommodate suffering that can embrace suffering, and that there is no suffering, no pain in the world that actually can be outside of this space. So whatever pain arises, it arises in this space, and it's held in that space. That's the space of compassion. And that spaciousness, by its nature, because of its spaciousness, because of its stillness, actually has equanimity as well in it. It has a, a vast steadiness in it. And also because it's not something of the self. Self is little and wobbly. Uh, space is, is vast and steady. And it's actually not uncommon for people to feel, either through practice or quite spontaneously in their life, not, not doing any, any compassion practice, that actually love and compassion are they can one can also have a sense that they're in a way qualities of the universe they're some, somehow they're just aspects of the universe that are available to us they're somehow in the vastness of things and sometimes people have uh, just reported this just a sense of this coming out of the blue it just didn't seem to have any history of anything like this at all, there may be very none or very little practice history, and there's just this sense, and of course it fades. But uh, this is quite common. When, if, if or when that happens, there can be, people may want to, may feel drawn to using the language of God. That there's a sense of touching something really um, awesome in vastness, and uh, something we can't even begin to fathom. And I think that's fine. I think that's lovely. One may use the language of bodhisattvas or the energy of a bodhisattva. It doesn't matter. It's just something that's available to human consciousness to tap into, to feel as a support. And begin to get a sense of uh, compassion and love being something really uh, unfathomably deep, something very mysterious. Actually, all the all the great mystics talk in that uh, one common theme is is always love and compassion. Julian of Norwich, one of the English mystics, said, uh, "Love is without beginning. Love is without beginning. It's almost like getting a sense that." we start with the idea of, yeah, it's me doing, me being compassionate, me doing this. And as it deepens, we get a sense, maybe that's not really the whole truth of this. There's something uh, unfathomably deep and mysterious about, about what love is.
So, of course, in, in all of this, we're talking about love and compassion. I mean, it's absolutely necessary not to ex- be excluding ourselves. That sometimes we can have this aspiration to compassion, and just to make sure that that compassion, in its boundlessness, includes ourselves. And so often we, we're too quick to leave ourselves out of that. The Buddha said we could search the entire universe the entire universe for someone more deserving of love and compassion than we are and we wouldn't find that person having a basis in, in love for ourselves is, is really the basis then for uh, forgiving to others When, when we feel hurt uh, by another person, uh, again, it can be quite uh, a sort of n- normal initial impulse to want to just, oh, I should fix this anger I feel with uh, at them. So I should send them love, I should send them compassion. It might actually be quite skillful to, to turn that love and compassion on ourselves at that point. After all, we're the ones that are hurting it, we need that. Apart from being just a skillful response, something very interesting can, can happen there. We can actually open to the beginnings of another dimension of, of emptiness. So we talk about the emptiness of selves and people, but actually the emptiness of everything. If I'm angry, if I'm hurt, and I give uh, compassion and love to myself, slowly, hopefully, or maybe quickly, uh, the presence of love in the mind actually uh, is not a neutral factor, begins to change my perception. So the other person, or the world, or the thing, or the event, begins to look differently. Why? Because there's love now in the mind and in the heart. So that the way we see things is dependent, we, we're beginning to understand, the way we see things is actually dependent on what's in the mind. If, if we, we can, and we can see this by giving love to ourselves. See how the perception changes when we give kindness and compassion to ourselves. This is actually not a small thing. It's the beginnings of understanding, a deeper understanding of emptiness. to um, the ways that we share uh, that we are one with other beings and this reflection on oneness is something that will uh, open the flow of compassion so if we actually deliberately take the time to bring this into our meditations to bring this into our uh, consciousness we, we are all one all, all beings are one in the sense that we are vulnerable, our bodies are vulnerable, vulnerable to injury, vulnerable to sickness, 
vulnerable to aging, to death. We share that. We share that vulnerability. And we can actually deliberately reflect on this. And we also share the vulnerability of living in what is basically an uncertain world. We live with this quality of anicca, of uncertainty. And uh, we, we must all know someone, certainly know of someone, who just uh, in the course of a few moments or a few hours, their life has just been changed drastically. And we don't know what, when we get up in the morning what will happen that day. And we, we all share that uncertainty, living in an uncertain world. All share that vulnerability. To reflect on this deliberately, consciously, frequently. But not only that, we share on top of that a bewilderment with all of this. That's part of the human condition too. That we actually don't uh, yet clearly understand uh, fully the causes of suffering, how we're making ourselves suffer. And we also don't yet fully understand where to look for happiness. And we all share that. Uh, to reflect on, compassion has to come out of that. One of the, th- the main thing that's blocking the flow of compassion is the sense of separation. So we need to have the willingness to touch our suffering, to open to it, but also to really reflect on the commonality, on the humanity, the common humanity, the oneness that we share. And we incline the mind that way, and we, we uh, encourage the mind to see that oneness instead of to see separation all the time. There's a poem... Uh, it's actually called Kindness, but it's, uh, it's really talking about the quality of compassion. Says, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, All this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, 
It is I you've been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Reflect a little bit more on this oneness, on seeing oneness, seeing this emptiness. This, we can talk about we can talk about the emptiness of the self. We can also talk about, in a way, the fullness of the self, or perhaps the infinite nature of a person. We are infinite. Every person, every being, is infinite. So what does that mean? It means that <coughs> actually, uh, astronomy tells us now that. The elements that make up the skin, the nails, the teeth, the eyes, the, the lungs, everything, these were all manufactured uh, in stars. Uh, and probably uh, one star exploded and the elements that make up all, the same atoms that make up all our bodies, everyone in this room was actually at some point in one star together and manufactured there and this star exploded and all the elements uh, travelled at vast interstellar distances caught by the Earth's gravitational field and became our bodies. So at one point we were one like that and actually long, way longer before that we were actually one because, because of the Big Bang. You know, It was all this tiny oneness and out of that everything that we call now separate was really one. And actually even now we're all breathing, we're exchanging our, our bodies, our molecules with the environment and, and through food. Walt Whitman uh, said, what did he say? I believe a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars. So in 1850 or something, he already had a sense of this, somehow intuitively, mystically. Our, actually it doesn't stop there at the physical. Our perceptions too. Our perceptions depend on things to perceive, depend on all this, which was all one uh, before. So our perceptions actually uh, depend on the things of the universe. Our mind depends on that. Without things to perceive, uh, what is a human? Is there a human being there? Ourselves depend are not separate. We depend on our perceptions. We have the sense that we're somehow different from our perceptions. But actually, without our perceptions, there's no human being. So all this is bound up in the oneness too. Emptiness is fullness. So we talk about uh, an empty being, but it's actually that we're not separate things in the way that we think we are. We're actually, we are the whole universe, really. We're not separate, we're interpenetrating. Our atoms, our minds, all this is interpenetrating. And this isn't a nice, uh, it's not, it shouldn't hopefully not be just a nice idea or, or something intellectual, but we can really actually uh, sit down and begin to reflect this way. Actually think about stars and stellar explosions and all that. As, and really let that into the heart and reflect on what a human being is and their, 
their infinite nature. And when we do that, actually, the heart has to open that way. And it needs practice, it's not just uh, an idea. about emptiness and it seems a bit um, it's not an easy thing to understand and we could go on to I won't but we could go on talking about emptiness but um, one of the things to realize is that if emptiness if seeing emptiness is not is not uh, resulting in compassion uh, something's a bit a bit off there's not a real understanding there there's not a real understanding of emptiness and we need to actually look again and look in a way of seeing that brings compassion, that brings love. That's actually one of the signs of, of seeing deeply. When we see, when we understand emptiness, the emptiness of, of ourselves, the emptiness of others, the emptiness of everything, uh, it brings compassion because there isn't this sense of separation. Because there are no belief then in barriers. There's no fault-finding. There's no inflating of the self or deflating of the self or inflating others or deflating others. With the absence of that, the natural state, the natural condition will be love. We can actually see very deeply that not only selves are empty, but things are empty. <coughs> In the end, everything is empty. Even suffering is empty, actually. But somehow, mysteriously, even seeing that suffering is empty still brings, it should bring compassion. It does bring compassion. So it's not, there's a, there's a, a mysterious paradox there. And all of this is actually possible for us. I mean, it's just sort of laying out a, a long, big path. But all of this is possible. It's very real. It's very uh, possible to, as I said, ask the right questions and move that way and open the heart that way. And that's uh, uh, of all the journeys that we as human beings can take. There can't be really any any more worthwhile or more beautiful ones than to uh, really inquire and open in compassion. sit quietly for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.